Hello, and welcome to the 13th episode of the BLS Report. The BLS Report podcast is produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia in memory of our friend and colleague, the late Bob Baxt, AO. My name is Professor Pamela Henrahan. I'm Deputy Chair of the BLS, and I'm uh, delighted to be joined by my regular co-host, John Keeves from Johnson Winter Slattery. Hello, John. Great to be here again for the 13th time. Well, I'm not, I haven't been here for the 13th time, but you have. It's, um, it's astonishing, isn't it? We, we so enjoy producing this for our colleagues in the business law section and for all of the other people that we know now listen uh, online to the podcast. So we've got a fantastic topic today. We're going to be talking about current developments in individual and corporate insolvency in Australia. And we have two perfectly positioned guests to help us with that. Our first guest is Chair of the Insolvency and Reconstruction Committee of the Business Law Section, Mr. Chris Pierce. Chris is Managing Partner of Blackwall Legal in Perth, which is a boutique commercial firm with a busy insolvency practice. Welcome to you, Chris. Great to be with you. And our second guest is an academic colleague, Professor Jason Harris. Jason is Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Sydney. He's a member of the Corporations Committee of the Law Council and of the Insolvency and Reconstruction Committee. And for insolvency practitioners listening to the podcast, they'll know also that Jason is a co-author of Keys Insolvency Law. Welcome, Jason. Thanks very much for inviting me. So we're going to begin by recognising that it's 40 years ago this year since the Harmer Inquiry was first impanelled. So 40 years is a long time. I wonder, Jason, can you just give us a bit of a flavour of where Harmer, what Harmer was and what's happened since then? Sure. So the, what we call the Harmer Committee uh, was the Australian Law Reform Commission, and there was actually three commissioners, uh, including the, the former general counsel of my university, uh, Richard Fisher. Uh, and they took several years uh, to basically look into both personal and corporate insolvency. They consulted very widely. They put out various discussion papers along the line uh, and uh, had um, public hearings with a whole range of different stakeholders. They were also heavily informed by international developments. So there had recently been a very large insolvency inquiry in the UK, which is known as the Cork Report. Uh, and I think they'd actually gone over to England and had a chat to some of the people who were involved in that. Uh, and it, it was really the first time that we'd had a comprehensive look at both personal and corporate insolvency in Australia. Uh, in the 1960s, we had a very large... Uh, um, law reform review of personal insolvency and there'd been various inquiries into specific aspects of corporate insolvency over the over the decades but it was really the late 1970s and the earlier law reform commission report that was looking at debt recovery procedures in Australia which was one of the first ALRC reports which revealed some concerns about some practices specifically around debt debt, debt collection and that led to the Harmer Committee being commissioned in the early 1980s. Now, they actually didn't report until 1988, so the uh, committee went for several years. And even though we think of the, the so-called Harmer reforms, they actually weren't introduced, many of them, until the early 1990s, after the recession we had to have 
then <laughs> prompted a lot of thinking about uh, personal and corporate insolvency. But many of the aspects of our current insolvency law framework date back to that Harmer Committee in the mid-1980s. Now, things certainly haven't stood still since then. It was a, a huge multi-volume uh, report, but we have had several subsequent inquiries into different aspects of insolvency, uh, both personal and corporate. Uh, we've had several parliamentary inquiries, including the, the reasonably large uh, stock take of insolvency that the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services did back in 2004. Uh, we've had several Senate inquiries that have looked at different aspects of ASIC's role in insolvency, for example, and the performance of ASIC. Uh, and uh, we've also had some external bodies. So uh, when we still had CAMAC, there were several reports that came out, looked at uh, corporate uh, uh, debt restructuring, for example. Corporate groups also had an insolvency angle to it. Uh, and then we've had most recently the Australian um, Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombud who did a report on insolvency back in 2020. So there's been several reviews uh, and insolvency has been looked at as part of much broader reviews like the financial system inquiry, for example. And what a lot of them have said is we actually need another Harmer report. Indeed. Uh, Chris, can you take us through just those couple of reforms that were made consequent to the COVID um, emergency? Yeah, absolutely, Pamela. I, look, um, things changed a lot during 2020 and things were very fast moving. Um, I was reading uh, the other day the interim report B from the Australian Law Reform Commission into Chapter 7 of the Corporations Act and there was this little table in it indicating the, uh, uh, the amount of time available for consultation on various... Uh, um, on, on various different law reform pieces over, over the, the course of a, a couple of years. And uh, there was a note there that the, uh, the, the corporate insolvency reforms introduced recently were by far the lowest amount of time for consultation. So we saw a lot of reform in insolvency over a very short period of time for 2020 and 2021. And uh, uh, the, the key things that came through at the end of 2020 that, that have been somewhat permanent reforms as distinct from the temporary changes during the, uh, the pandemic were the introduction of two uh, small business regimes. One, a, a simplified liquidation, um, or at least allegedly simplified liquidation procedure, and then a uh, what they call a small business restructuring regime, which is supposed to be something like a voluntary administration in, in the sense of the opportunity to restructure a corporation's affairs, but without actually having an administrator run the business for a period of time, and instead having them um, sit alongside the continued operations in a debtor in possession regime uh, by the existing management. So um, they call that a small business restructuring regime. They, they were introduced primarily as a result of the expected, I suppose, tidal wave of insolvencies um, following uh, a return to normal after the pandemic. We haven't seen that tidal wave. And um, indeed, um, it, the, the usage or the, or the take up of those two regimes has been quite limited. Um, uh, one caveat on that is that the, the small business restructuring regime um, has has been used more recently, uh, more often. Um, so the last couple of quarters, we've seen the numbers really pick up. And so there's an assertion maybe that uh, it just took people a while to get used to it. And perhaps um, it, it was just necessary to see uh, insolvency practitioners get their templates and systems and procedures in order, in order for that system to be able to be used effectively. It's still got 
quite a bit of criticism from uh, the profession in the sense that it's still too clunky and expensive and it's too reflective of the, the VA or voluntary administration regime. Um, but I think uh, at least it's being used. The simplified liquidation regime, on the other hand, is really not being used at all. And um, the consensus appears to be that it's just because it's not really any simpler than a normal liquidation, uh, or at least that uh, that's the that's the perception, and so it's not being used effectively at all at the moment. Mm -hmm. So has that brought us to where we are now, which is I think a Senate inquiry that's underway at the moment. It's a parliamentary uh, joint committee on corporations and financial services. Um, so, yeah, that, that certainly concerns about some of these reforms, concerns about the implement, implementation of previous reforms and whether they've, they've worked, things like Safe Harbour, for example, the changes to um, address so-called creditor-defeating dispositions, uh, changes introduced to give greater protection to uh, employee entitlements during restructuring, there's been quite a lot of reforms over, say, the last four or five years, and uh, I think all of that's kind of come together with this uh, PJC inquiry. Yeah, we, we, one way of describing uh, the, the current situation is that there's there's a lot of bolt-ons, and many of them are a bit narrowly focused. Um, you, you've seen people, and, and, and many of those exist outside the scheme of the existing Corporations Act as well. So you've got, for example... Um, the, the, the PPS regime under the Personal Property Securities Act, which um, which replaced in effective uh, replaced effectively a, a number of different regimes, including registration of charges under the Corporations Act. Um, but you've also got state-based legislation for security of payments in the subcontracting space, uh, in construction, and you've got uh, other aspects of the insolvency regime managed under different legislation at different levels. So. You, you know, the, a, a difficulty is we've had over the, the course of the period between Harmer and now, uh, you've had a lot of changes and a lot of introduction of new narrowly focused regimes that doesn't really look at insolvency as a whole and say, what other policies and procedures we want in place to deal with the whole of insolvency. I'd also just add something there that in contrasting the time that the Harmer report was handed down and now, I mean, Australian businesses have completely changed. The sort of assets that businesses have, the sort of finance avenues that businesses have, just the way businesses operate. I mean, the, the internet, I'm not even sure that that existed back in, or at least as a general commercial thing in 1988. So the world's changed so much. Uh, and, we, and as Chris says, we've just been bolting on things to address particular concerns. And really the time has come for us to stand back and say, what does a, a 21st century insolvency regime look like? And does the PJC inquiry give us that opportunity or is this just the opportunity to say to the Parliamentary Joint Committee, we need to have another Harmer? Well, I think the, um, the, the Parliamentary Joint Committee appreciate from what I've been able to tell, and we've given evidence before that inquiry on behalf of the BLS, um, as have a number of different professional organisations, uh, but it seems to us that the senators and members running that inquiry recognise that they've got a very short time frame to report. They're due to uh, to go back to Parliament by the 31st of May, I think, or perhaps even the 30th of May. Um, and they don't have the bandwidth to come up with and report on a, a series of uh, material legislative pieces of reform in that time period. But what they have indicated is that they may 
recommend the establishment of a new uh, inquiry by, say, the Australian Law Reform Commission or some other appropriate body. Uh, and in their questions on notice to stakeholders uh, at, the, at the end of last year, uh, they asked a series of questions about what might be in the terms of reference for a broader inquiry uh, and, and who should run it and how it should be run. So that, that gives you a good indication that that might be the direction they're heading. So we're listening to Chris Pierce and Jason Harris discussing current developments in insolvency law. Chris, I'm going to ask you if you could pick two or three things to change in the insolvency regime for what I might describe, describe as small business or closed corporations, family business, what do you think the most urgent issues are there? Well, there's a, there's a view, and I think I probably share this view, that it's currently too difficult as a small business or a small family enterprise uh, to run uh, to run insolvency rate uh, well, to run insolvency processes uh, in a manner that is efficient and provides a clean slate uh, and, a, and a relatively good outcome for stakeholders. Uh, one of the difficulties is that we have two different regimes one under the Corporations Act for dealing with companies winding up and restructure, and another for personal bankruptcy. That's fine, except that uh, when you get into the nitty gritty, and uh, obviously Jason uh, made the comment before about the changes in uh, the Australian economic landscape over the course of the last few decades. When you look at the manner in which these small businesses are run, you see that people's personal affairs and business affairs are incredibly intertwined. Uh, directors often have all of their family wealth invested in a business. They are personally guaranteeing the lease facilities um, or the finance facilities and the lease on um, their business premises, sometimes even the trade creditors. They're probably personally liable for the tax debts or many of them because of the manner in which by the time these businesses go under, the uh, the tax debts are often unpaid and unreported. So having two different systems for dealing with the same set of circumstances uh, is in some respects undesirable. But what I would say is there's room for the development of a regime which more effectively and efficiently delivers a result for the uh, resolution of the affairs of insolvent small businesses. And that may be um, an improved debtor and possession regime, and we've already talked a little bit about the introduction of the small business restructuring regime and perhaps some of the improvements that might be made to uh, make that simpler and easier to deal with. Uh, there is a there is a movement for the harmonisation of personal bankruptcy and corporate insolvency into one piece of legislation. Uh, the, the United Kingdom introduced an Insolvency Act in 1986 uh, following the court report that uh, Jason mentioned earlier. And uh, Singapore have recently done the same thing uh, by effectively uh, running a 10-year process to look at reform of their insolvency provisions. And uh, that's culminated in the introduction of legislation to harmonise their insolvency legislation as well. So we may see the same thing happen here, but it probably will take a little bit of time. And that's common around the world, really. I mean, you, you, you mentioned uh, Singapore and the UK, but India's done something similar with its... Uh, Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code of 2018. Uh, Canada has had the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act for, for decades. And of course, in the United States, the Bankruptcy Code covers both uh, personal and corporate. So, you know, we're really relying on uh, the traditional English system, which had 
separate rules for for insolvent companies and separate rules for insolvent individuals. But that's that's not how most developed countries uh, run their systems these days. One other thing that I'd probably raise is, uh, and and bearing in mind that we are in the midst of a of an inquiry by this parliamentary joint committee. So the BLS has made a submission and we've, we've covered a number of topics in our submission. We've made 33 recommendations. Many of them are that certain areas of potential reform should be considered. Uh, but there are only a few where we've come to a consensus view amongst our insolvency committee about the way forward. Uh, one of them is the, is the rewriting of the legislation and I've already touched upon that a little bit. Um, but another is uh, the reduction in unnecessary and expensive court proceedings in uh, particularly in small administrations and liquidations where the cost of certain proceedings uh, really outweighs the benefit. Um, and there are a series of those. Some of them are to limit personal liability of administrators. Some are to extend convening periods for, uh, for a second meeting of creditors. There are applications for approval of um, transactions by liquidators that will go beyond three months or that go beyond a threshold uh, value in terms of compromise of debt. Uh, there are appointments of liquidators as trustees or, or, or receivers and managers of trusts and solvent trustees um, where, where the, um, the trustee might have ejected them immediately on appointment. And some pretty minor reform could have the effect of really saving a lot of money for a lot of liquidators and administrators in small value administrations uh, in a circumstance where a lot of these applications are very rarely uh, refused or rejected and um, a lot of money still goes into them when perhaps that's not really necessary at a policy level. Jason, I think you had a view about the need for maybe a government liquidator? Yes. Australia is a little bit unusual uh, in this respect. So, and, and it's really just a, a, a quirk of history. So the, the traditional uh, role of the government in insolvency was to kind of facilitate uh, the appointment of um, uh, personal bankruptcy uh, uh, assignees through the court system. Uh, there was a period in, in the 19th century in the UK where the government took over and, and that wasn't terribly successful. They then changed their provisions in the uh, 1880s and, and 1890s to create the role of an official receiver's office. Now, as, um, as, as fate would have it, Australia then adopted that for personal bankruptcy and we have official receivers and, and an official trustee in bankruptcy, which is a, effectively a government officer as the bankruptcy trustee where, where there's not a private trustee. But for various reasons, we never adopted that in corporate insolvency. So it was very successful in England. They then rolled it out into their uh, company law legislation so that there was then an official receiver in corporate uh, liquidation. And in Australia, we just never adopted that. Now, maybe that was because there weren't thousands and thousands and thousands of insolvent companies in the colonies. And so there wasn't thought a need to do that. There was a, a proposal to do that in an early company law bill, which never made it to parliament, but it was widely discussed uh, shortly before the High Court's decision in Hutt, Parker and Moore, uh, which of course then ruled that the, uh, the Commonwealth Parliament couldn't make laws with respect to the creation of corporations. So that proposal was scrapped and we've then never had it. So we've always had a private uh, liquidator profession here in Australia, at least for the last hundred years. But when we look in other jurisdictions, in New Zealand, for example, in Singapore, and also in the UK, 
we see that there is a role for the government in, in particularly those matters where perhaps there's no assets to pay for a private liquidator or in matters where there might be some significant public interest. So in the UK, we've seen very large insolvencies like British Steel, which created all sorts of environmental contamination risks. Well, the government took responsibility for that because no liquidator is going to take that potential personal liability. In cases like Carillion, the collapse of the large construction firm, or Thomas Cook, where we had thousands of British citizens who were stranded around the world, again, the government stepped in because it was in the public interest. The approach that we've tended to take in Australia is certainly not to suggest that the government doesn't do anything in the public interest, but rather it's been the government providing some funding to appoint, say, a special purpose liquidator or a receiver, for example. Uh, we saw that in ABC Learning, where we had hundreds and hundreds of childcare centres that, that may well have closed. So the government does have an important role to play. But what I've been writing about uh, with my co-author, Michael Murray, for the last few years is advocating really a greater recognition that, that some of the tasks that private liquidators do are not done in, in the interest of creditors. They're done really in the broader public interest. And that includes things like reporting on potential offences that might have been committed to the Securities Commission. So really what we're saying is, well, why are creditors paying for that? If it's not going back to creditors, that's a public interest function and it should be supported by public resources. Now, whether that's in the form of a designated government liquidator who actually does the assetless and public interest jobs, or whether... Rather, it's having a kind of official receiver's office who will just facilitate that being done by the private profession by providing some funding and some guidelines around that. But I, I absolutely support the idea that the government should have more uh, involvement in some of those public interest matters and, and low asset and no asset matters. There's definitely uh, a, a variety of views on this matter uh, in the profession, and I know that uh, a reader has expressed a strong view. I should say, a reader are the Australian Restructuring Insolvency and Turnaround Association, um, who represent primarily the practitioners themselves, the liquidators, administrators, and, and receivers who operate insolvency jobs, and um, they they take a view that uh, there's no need for the government to do the work. Um, that instead the private sector is best placed to to perform the service. Now, um, a cynic might point out the self-interest in that, but I, I do think that there's something to the argument. Uh, and I suppose then the question becomes, well, um, it's not just about who does the work, it's also about its funding. And Jason makes that point that, um, that really we're asking the, the private sector at present to do an awful lot of work uh, and that work sometimes is focused not so much on resolving better returns for creditors or, or even the, uh, the narrowly focused micro assessment of the particular company concerned, but perhaps, perhaps things like misconduct and general questions about being a corporate policeman, where um, if we're asking the liquidators, liquidators to do that, then perhaps we should be... Uh, paying them out of someone else's pocket than the creditors of the particular company concerned. Now, now who pays is another question altogether because perhaps it's all businesses through some sort of levy, perhaps it's just the taxpayer generally because it's considered to be part of the, the functioning of the economy. Of course, there are political considerations there as well. So we've talked a lot about small insolvencies, asset in, assetless insolvencies, uh, but in the past week, we've actually seen the first, uh, you know, major bank failure in the US since the GFC, and things that seem to be happening in property markets with rising interest rates suggest that there could be 
significant large-scale insolvencies looming. Hopefully not, but uh, possibly. Um, when, when we're talking about insolvency, there used to be calls for a Chapter 11-style debtor-in-possession regime in Australia. That seems to have gone off the boil. Um, uh, Jason, would you like to make a comment on that? Sure. Um, but these things seem to come around every three or four years. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've heard people say that they, they people politicians go over to America and they think Chapter 11 is fantastic and therefore we should have it here. What that really um, glosses over is that Chapter 11 isn't a law, it's a legal system. So we can look at aspects of Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the US and say, look, you know, a debtor in possession model can have some advantages. Some of the powers that debtors in possession under Chapter 11 have, our insolvency practitioners don't have here, uh, particularly around renegotiation of contracts and leases and these types of things, they might be useful to have. But Chapter 11 is a legal system over there. They have their own federal bankruptcy court with expert judges basically in every city. Like there are thousands of bankruptcy judges. Uh, so we couldn't introduce Chapter 11 here because Chapter 11 is premised on the idea that it's a court-driven process, that the bankruptcy judge, who is not a federal constitutional judge appointed for life, they're an expert appointed for, for a maximum of 15 years, and their job is to actually manage the bankruptcy case. So that's not just resolving legal disputes, that's actually giving advice about what needs to happen at, at different points during the case. And US bankruptcy lawyers will say, uh, Chapter 11 is so court-driven, if you want to blow your nose, you have to go off and get court permission. Everything you want to do, you're going back to the court every month to approve everything. That's not really the way our courts work here. I'm not saying our judges couldn't do that here, but it's a very different system. So I don't see many calls for Chapter 11 these days. And, and in fact, I did my PhD on the efficacy of voluntary administration, our existing uh, restructuring law. And one of the things I found from that, and, and I spoke to uh, 40 senior stakeholders and did surveys of over uh, 400 uh, survey respondents. And I found very broad levels of support for voluntary administration, that it's a flexible regime. You can pretty much get it to do what you want to do. It works well at the big end of town. It works maybe not quite as well at the small end of town, but it can still work at the smaller end of town. So we, we don't need a wholesale debtor in possession chapter 11 procedure. Thanks, Jason. Um, one of the, what you might call, weeping sores of Australian um, uh, legal reform is the fact that uh, the CAMAC report on M MIS insolvencies still sits on the shelf uh, gathering dust. I know Pamela cares about this because she was involved in, the, uh, in, in that report as a member of the, of the CAMAC subcommittee. Uh, but the insolvency of trust is, is really a very difficult and complex issue that has not been addressed in Australia. Uh, Chris, have you got any comments on, on where, where that is or should be? Well, uh, we've spoken a bit today already about the length of time since Harmer, and one of the notable exceptions from the reforms introduced following the Harmer report was the complete ignorance of the section of the Harmer report on trust reform. Uh, there, there was a, a court case that made it to the High Court only a few years ago uh, called Carter Holt, uh, and, and the, the very first paragraph the, the plural, uh, excuse me, in the very first paragraph, the plurality of uh, judges have, uh, have made explicit reference to the Harmer Report and the recommendations to uh, introduce trust reform and the fact that it hasn't happened yet. It really is a, a problem. 
and it causes all sorts of expenses from small uh, insolvencies right through to large insolvencies. Australia is one of the few places in the world where businesses operating as trading trusts uh, occur quite frequently. And uh, there, there was indeed, there was a recent uh, trust decision in the United Kingdom in respect of a Jersey uh, investment trust arrangement that made specific reference to Australian law and Australian case law development because that's the one place that you tend to see more trust uh, reform uh, or sorry, trust uh, businesses or trading trust businesses. Uh, now, it's a real problem and it, it just needs to be addressed. Obviously, MIS insolvencies are a, a part of that and they're a large part of it focused on the, the big end of town. But simple trading trusts operating um, simple businesses for usually tax-driven purposes often go under and a large portion of the expenses associated with those insolvencies go to dealing with the fact that there is just no proper system for the management of insolvent trusts. So uh, it would be good to see that reform introduced. The BLS has traditionally and consistently supported introduction of the, the trust insolvency regime recommended by Ron Harmer and his colleagues in the Harmer Report in 1988. There've been some changes to the economy since then that justify some slight amendments to that, but in, in large part, you can just copy and paste those recommendations and put them in place. It might be worth mentioning, Chris, that this week, so we're recording in the middle of March, the Assistant Treasurer has indicated that they're going to do a new inquiry into managed investment schemes, and I think it's coming from the collapse of the Sterling Group over there in Perth. So maybe this issue will get another run? Well, one would only hope so, but um, my only concern about that is that I think we're well placed right now to have a proper look at insolvency in a broad sense and in a way that is all encompassing. And the last thing that we really want is narrowly focused reform on particular aspects of our regime that is inconsistent with other aspects of our regime. So I would hope that uh, any potential reform to MIS insolvency is undertaken with a, uh, a very clear view towards uh, the broader reform that it looks like we might see. Excellent. We'll take that message to the Assistant Treasurer. ASIC's got an important role in corporate insolvency, obviously not uh, personal insolvency. Uh, Jason, how's ASIC doing? So I would give ASIC uh, a mixed scorecard on corporate insolvency. So on the one hand, we've got ASIC's liquidators and auditors team that's really focused on regulating insolvency practitioners, so regulating liquidators, uh, and they do a, a variety of things each year and they, they do quite a lot of uh, public consultation uh, and public engagement with bodies like ARETA and the Law Council. But that's not the part of ASIC that I'm particularly concerned about. It's, it's the lack of enforcement action that we see from the reports that liquidators are putting in and other insolvency practitioners are putting in. So every year we're seeing between five to 10,000 reports of potential crimes being committed, ASIC as an institution, not just the insolvency team, but as an institution, maybe looks at 1% of those reports or 2% of those reports. They've said this publicly. And then in the vast majority of those cases, they do nothing. So that's the concern that I have, is that we, we talk a lot about, you know, ASIC's enforcement role and is it tough enough and do people respect it? And we've got potentially tens of thousands of crimes being committed every year that are being reported on by insolvency practitioners that's having to come out of money that might otherwise go to creditors to do that work. 
and the regulator is doing nothing. It's taking a, a tiny handful of cases each year and looking at ASIC's media releases and looking at ASIC's enforcement reports, looking at its annual reports. The num- And I've looked at all of their annual reports for the last 26 years uh, as part of a research project that I'm doing. The number of matters that they're bringing now is pretty much the same that they were bringing 26 years ago. And I think that message is getting out there into the business community that, uh, you know, that if you're not working for a big company, if you're not famous, if you're not a celebrity or something, ASIC probably won't take action. That's a terrible message to be sending to the community. So ASIC needs to do a much better job of explaining the sorts of matters that it brings, why it's bringing those sorts of matters and why it isn't bringing other sorts of matters. Now, maybe we need to look at the liability framework. So maybe it's too difficult for ASIC to ban directors who are involved in multiple corporate failures. Maybe we should have an automatic ban, for example, rather than requiring ASIC ASIC to go through its internal uh, delegate decision-making process, which ASIC recently said can take more than a year, even in cases where liquidators are saying, this is a lay-down misere, this is clear misconduct. So something needs to be done there, I think. If I can just add to that, uh, I think that uh, the... Pretty clear. Uh, many of the, the listeners to this podcast would know about things like phoenixing, and there's a big phoenixing task force, and uh, a lot of focus on how we deal with misconduct in the lead up to insolvency appointments, and also uh, regulation, perhaps of pre-insolvency advisors. My view, for what it's worth, is a lot of the misconduct that we see is linked to the fact that there is just no enforcement of that behaviour on that conduct. Uh, there's been attempts to try and fix that. You do see, uh, for example, the introduction of the credit-defeating disposition regime, where ASIC has a a, a right to declare a transaction to be a credit-defeating disposition. That legislation has been in place for some time now, and there have been zero determinations by ASIC uh, that there is a credit-defeating disposition. Um, Now, uh, that's no criticism of the people involved. I'm sure it's very complex, but obviously the regime isn't working effectively, and uh, something needs to be done to ensure that area, this regime is properly regulated. Some would say that uh, ASIC has too many responsibilities and not enough resources, and some might even say that ASIC ought to be broken up, Pamela. Uh, (laughs) But uh, uh, should we have a standalone insolvency regulator? Jason? Yeah, I think so. Uh, And and that's the way, again, looking to the overseas experience, that's the way that it operates in many other countries. Um, I think that ASIC's, the, the, the massive expansion of ASIC's regulatory remit over the last 20 years has meant that the, the regulation of, if you like, insolvency offences uh, has just become too diffused within the organisation, that they're not necessarily big enough fish, so they don't warrant a lot of their own litigation. Uh, we end up shoehorning things into what ASIC calls small business regulation and compliance, for which there are no media releases that are released. All we get are raw figures at the end of each year. Well, there, there was 100 matters run. We don't know what they were about. So there's really a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability there. And I think if we had a standalone insolvency regulator and that was part of their job, that's one of their KPIs, I think we would see some better outcomes. Now, of course, that would still have to be funded. I'm not saying that would be cheaper than the system we have now, but uh, ASIC has 101 things that it's responsible for. And so taking action against... Joe Blogg, uh, director of uh, a transport, you know, one-person company who was doing all sorts of things, maybe not deliberately, but maybe just because they didn't know any better, that's not high on ASIC's priority. And I think it should be because it sends the wrong message to the business community. 
that sort of change is a very broad uh, and material piece of reform. At the moment, you have personal insolvency regulated by the Attorney General's Department and corporate insolvency regulated by Treasury, uh, each under different regulators in AFSA and ASIC. So uh, the introduction of an insolvency regulator uh, would require a lot of work and the harmonisation of personal and corporate regimes. Uh, and I suspect that, that is some years away. Thank you for those observations. I am on the record as having the view that ASIC's mandate is too broad and that we ought to look at that exactly, that sort of very big picture reform that you're talking about, Chris. So I can see that we're getting towards the end of our time together. I was wondering, I might start with you, Jason, if there were one or two things that from the point of view of a sort of general commercial lawyer or a person that's interested in business regulation, if somebody made you king for the day, what would you like to see change in the medium term? I would like to see a greater focus on what sh what are the desirable outcomes of insolvency. I think that we, we spend a lot of time focusing on ideals of insolvency around transparency and, and independence and accountability and creditor engagement and empowerment and these types of things, and not enough time focused on what the outcomes of insolvency are. So I, as part of that, I would like to see, for example, the introduction of some more streamlined procedures, some, some more cut down procedures, and to make it easier to actually get better commercial outcomes. I think sometimes that we are holding ourselves back by saying, for example, well, you know, you've got to have completely separate practitioners in certain circumstances, because there could possibly be a conflict, even though in those particular circumstances, maybe there wouldn't be a conflict. I think there's too many default rules that are, are trying to reach this ideal of insolvency and we're getting worse outcomes uh, as a result of that. So that, that would be the first thing that I would like to see change is, is focus on the outcomes of insolvency and, and uh, design laws accordingly and hopefully simplified laws. Um, the other change that, that I would like to see, I guess, actually is just overall simple, more simplified laws. So as the, the uh, Insolvency Committee recommended in, in its um, submission, which I, I had a small role in, um, you know, we, we just keep adding to the law. Uh, so it's the squeaky wheel syndrome. You know, a stakeholder complains about something and uh, then there's an inquiry and then there's a, a bolt-on, as, as Chris said earlier. So rather than just adding to the law continuously so that we end up with hundreds more pages every year, which is what the ALRC's Chapter 7 inquiry is telling us, um, to, to actually start thinking a bit more methodically about the law as a whole. And this is where, you know, to, to come back to where we started at, this is where a root and branch review is really needed rather than how do we make this rule work better or that rule work better? Let's think about what an ideal system should look like. So, so that would be my second wish. They're very big wishes, I know. Well, you have to wish, you have to dream. Chris? Yes, I, I agree with Jason. I'd like to see the Corporations Act or at least Chapter 5 of the Corporations Act rewritten uh, potentially as part of a harmonisation project. But at the moment you have... Uh, you have rules about the convening of meetings and you have to look not just at the Corporations Act, but also the Corporations Regulations at the Insolvency Practice Schedule, which is Schedule 2 of the Act, at a whole different set of regulations called the Insolvency Practice Regulations or Insolvency Practice Rules. You've got, uh, uh, you've got 
ASIC regulatory instruments that amend other ASIC regulatory instruments that amend the law. Uh, understanding how it all fits together is quite difficult even for uh, experienced legal practitioners. And what we've really got... It sounds worse than Chapter 7. <laughs> it is in many respects. It's a, it's a, to use an analogy that uh, you've uh, given me in the past, John, it's a bit like a, a 1982 Holden that's been uh, amended with uh, or changed with uh, uh, aftermarket Bluetooth and all sorts of new regulators. And uh, I, I think uh, I think we'd be much better off with a whole new car. I'm not. I'm not sure that it's got a got an aftermarket supercharger anyway. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. And it's quite possible that its uh, its exhaust is uh, sounding pretty loud. Any final message for our business or listeners, Chris? Well, I think watch this space. Uh, we might see some minor reform arising out of the current parliamentary joint committee. I think that we're in for a longer process. Singapore took ten years recently, and I suspect that we're up for not necessarily quite that long, but certainly a multiple year process with a a broad review and then some uh, some legislative change later this decade. Jason? Well, I'd really just say to the listeners and the broader BLS members that it's just so important that, that we all have a say in this. You know, too often with these law reform initiatives, it's, it's a couple of different groups who put in submissions for everything. And if they're the only voices that the politicians hear, then we're not going to end up with the, the regime that, that works best. So, you know, there's lots of different members of the association, not just insolvency specialists, who may well have some valuable contributions to the law reform process that's to come. So get involved with the BLS, you know, join up to subcommittees, make contributions to your monthly meetings, you know, collectively, we can come up with a, a better system. Well, thank you, Chris Pierce, Managing Partner of Blackwall Legal, Chair of the BLS Insolvency and Reconstruction Committee, and to Professor Jason Harris from University of Sydney. And thank you to co-host Professor Pamela Hanrahan from UNSW. This has been the 13th edition of the BLS Report, a podcast by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia in honour of the late Professor Bob Baxt AO. <laughs>